welcome back to Word of Migration, a podcast from the Migration Policy Institute that delves into interesting topics on immigration, immigrant integration, and humanitarian protection with some of the world's big thinkers and policymakers. My name is Camila Coz, and I'm your host today and a senior policy analyst at the MPI International Programme. In this episode, we'll take a dive into displacement and migration trend in the West Africa Sahel region, looking into what forces are causing this displacement, what has changed in recent years, but also what could be done to better address the needs of displaced persons and the communities that host them. The Sahel is witnessing a multifaceted crisis with a break of violence, weak economies and various governance issues. The effect of climate change are adding to all of these challenges with an increase in temperatures that's 1.5 times faster than the global average. This factor all intersect and drive more people to be displaced internally or to seek refuge in another country. As of last year, 3 million people were internally displaced in Burkina Faso, Mali, Niger and Chad, but there was also over 1 million refugees and asylum seekers in these same four countries. All of these populations are hosted by local communities, but services and international aid fall short to meeting their needs. And insecurity has made the delivery of humanitarian assistance even more complicated. And yet, government in the Sahel have opened policies toward refugees. Chad has been praised for its progressive refugee policy. Niger is one of the champion countries for the upcoming global compact for refugees. Today's is Particularly important because in the past years, humanitarian organizations and others have warned that we shouldn't forget the crisis in the Sahel. And that's why we thought it would be important to hear um, from a guest, Alexandra Tapsoba, about what's the latest in the region. Alex is a development economist and a lecturer and researcher at the IR Institute for Population Science at the University Joseph Kizerbo in Ouagadougou. She's also part of the research project MIDEC, Migration for Development and Equality. Nilex has done a lot of work on migration, remittances and climate change and previously consulted for the International Organization for Migration and the Economic Community of West African States. She's joining us today from Burkina Faso. So let's dive right in. Alex, welcome. Hi, Camille. Thank you for having me. Alex, the past few years have been hectic with a global pandemic, political turmoil and more climate events, all of which are shaping and reshaping displacement in the Sahel. And I'd first like to discuss what has changed and what new trend explain that we're seeing more displacement than in the past. First of all, I would like to um, say one thing or two about the context of migration um, in the Sahel region. Basically, uh, one thing that we know now is that the, uh, what's going on in the Sahel it can be referred to as a south-south migration, meaning uh, people moving from a developing country to another developing country. Unfortunately, this kind of migration is not really studied or talked about by the media and it's very easy when you just tap, type migration in google you just uh, have results um, for people trying to reach europe however um, in our region uh, in sub-saharan region the world bank um, uh, assessed that into 2019 um, 70 percent of the migration was occurring in intra-regional sub-saharan uh, countries so people are mainly moving um, from neighboring countries to another neighboring country. So that's the first thing I wanted to say. Either or, if they are moving for economic reasons or now they are moving for, um, I would say, 
um, move is more of a forced migration, given what you were saying, given the insecurity in the region, um, given climate change and also the pandemic. So first of all, it's a, it's a very recurrent type of migration, understudied, underdeveloped, and people, are, people don't really know about it. And it is exacerbated by uh, what's going on regarding the insecurity in the region. That's a very good point. And, and I think here I want to talk a little bit about the routes because we know there's all these migration routes um, in the region that have been you know, used by migrants for many years, for decades and, and often longer. And can you tell us you know, how these routes are different or the same um, when we look at displacements that's happening in, in the Sahel today? Yes. Um, so... To talk more about this, I can take the example of Burkina Faso and Cote d'Ivoire. Um, these two countries have a long history of migration, and historically, Burkina Faso mainly migrating to um, Cote d'Ivoire um, since the colonial times. Uh, since the beginning, since um, like the creation of our countries, Burkina Faso are really um, are migrating first. The first destination of migrant Burkina Faso migrants are towards Cote d'Ivoire. In 2006, um, Burkina Bay, the share of Burkina Faso migrants uh, going to Cote d'Ivoire was more than 70%. And in 2019, this share was 71%, meaning that um, the share is declining, but it's still very high. With the context today, um, one uh, very interesting thing is that people now migrating because of insecurity are also going to Cote d'Ivoire mainly. Um, the UNHCR actually um, estimated that uh, as of yesterday, actually, there were 17,929 Burkina Faso asylum seekers in Cote d'Ivoire. So meaning that the old routes for economic migrants, if I can say it like that, is now the same route um, people uh, seeking refuge are actually going. That's fascinating. And and I think this also has to do with the relation with local communities, because what is striking in the region is local communities host all of this displaced population, and there does not seem to be serious tension between this group. And of course, looking at other contexts in the Middle East, in Europe, um, that's very different. Is that, you know, is that just a representation? Is that really the case? Um, and how do you how do you explain it? Yes, um, that's true, because I think that um, one particular thing in Africa or in sub-Saharan Africa is that we have we share very similar cultural um, cultural aspects, like the same ethnic group that you will find in Cote d'Ivoire, uh, in the upper north Cote d'Ivoire, you will find them in the southern part of Burkina Faso. So people sometimes don't really feel like they are changing countries. They are more uh, like we are just there. They don't really think that they are sh- that they are crossing borders. They're just moving around. So they, uh, the modern concept of borders are not really uh, the same for them. So first of all, they don't feel like uh, they are traveling to another country. That's the first thing. And the second thing, uh, maybe also because in Africa, I would say like in Burkina Faso, some ethnic groups, uh, they consider someone coming from another country or somewhere, either another country or another region, they will consider him um, more respectfully and more uh, give him more attention because they feel like they are more vulnerable because they are not with their family. So in general, uh, in the case of Burkina Faso, people are very welcoming. 
However, um, it's a situation that we never experienced before. Uh, were, that the insecurity very, very much started uh, in 2016 in Burkina Faso. So for now, um, I will say that local communities are very welcoming. In 2016, um, Burkina Faso experienced um, its first terrorist attacks. And since then, the, the, the number of IDPs and now the number of refugees is very much rising. Um, so this is a relatively new uh, phenomenon for the country. And as you were saying, uh, host communities are very welcoming um, to IDPs. And uh, when we are looking at the neighboring countries, they are also welcoming of the asylum seekers. Thanks. And that's actually something else I want to ask you about, because we often talk about refugees, but we know internally displaced persons actually make up the wide majority of, of the displaced population in the Sahel. And I was wondering if you could tell us a bit about how government seizes groups uh, in the region, in Burkina, but also in Niger or in Mali. It's a relatively new phenomenon. The insecurity, um, the terrorist attacks started in 2016 in Burkina Faso, but we experienced the first numbers um, of IDPs. Uh, the government started recording IDPs in 2018 upwards, meaning that it's uh, a relatively new phenomenon and the governments are just trying to manage the situation. They don't really have a um, clear plan for now. I think they are more responding to the emergency situation, which is providing protection, providing assistance to IDPs. So um, if I have to answer to that question, I would say that they are managing, managing the situation and each government now is seeking um, new ways of taking care of these IDPs. If they have to stay in the host communities for a long period of time, this is um, this may require some type of policies. And if they have to go back to their um, origin communities, how are these things managed? And so each government in the region have their own way of um, dealing with the um, with the IDPs phenomenon. So currently, we have more than 2 million IDPs in Burkina Faso, and they are spread in all the 13 administrative regions. So meaning that we have the largest part of IDPs in sub-Saharan Africa. When you're looking at the YMU, like the West African Monetary and Economic Union or the ECOWAS, we have the largest number. And Alex, why why is that? So we have the largest number of IDPs for several reasons. First of all, when you look at the map of Burkina Faso, you will see that, first of all, it's a very small country compared to Mali, to Niger, our neighboring countries that are struggling with terrorism as well. So for someone to move from one region to another region in Mali, it's not the same thing of like a, a Burkina Bay moving from his region to another region to seek refuge. Distances are smaller, so they are more prompt to move than in Niger and Mali where uh, the distances are very far away. That's the one point. The second point is that, of course, and unfortunately, we are the epicenter of terrorist attacks for the last um, two or three years. 
We have a lot of terrorist groups in the country and they are intensifying. The, the attacks are very much recurrent. Um, and also you add to that um, the political instability. So as you were saying at the beginning, um, we are struggling with, it's a multifaceted phenomenon and a lot of things are intertwined and it's just like a, it's just like a toxic situation where people are just fleeing to, to, to save their lives. Yeah. You mentioned that that some may be able to to return in the future. And looking at the situation in Burkina Faso, is the government trying to prepare for this? Are international organizations trying to prepare for this return? Or how does that how does that work at the moment? Yes, there are some efforts um, done by the government to um, ensure that people are able to go back in the in their local in their origin communities. But it's very much linked to this insecurity, to the terrorist attacks. You cannot make someone return to a situation um, that is threatening his life. So this is all related to the capacity of the government to secure the origin communities. And no one can say at the moment when this will end, but um, the the policy, uh, like the, the idea of the government is for people to go back in their local communities. That's really interesting. And I think it's it's also connected to the conversation about the refugee presence in the region, the refugee um, response. And you talked a little bit earlier about government trying to develop policies to address the needs of, of internally displaced persons. Um, and, and I'd like to turn to the refugee response um, in countries like Burkina Faso or Niger, Can you tell us a little bit about what's the policy framework regarding refugees? You know, is it the same across Niger, Mali, Burkina Faso? What what may be more formalized in some countries compared to to others? Um, usually, countries in the region ratify a lot of texts regarding the refugees. Um, so I'm pretty sure that we have the same level of and the same understanding of policies. And um, I don't think there's very much difference um, from one country to another uh, regarding refugees. Actually, we we are hosting more than 30,000 Malian refugees. And now with the insecurity, they are also hosting um, Burkina Bay refugees. So I, I'm pretty much sure that we have the same um, policies regarding refugees because we ratify the same, the same text. The same convention. Yeah, and, and, and that's actually a key question, is whether refugees can actually access the rights they're entitled to and enjoy basic services. Because as you said, you can ratify some international agreements, some international convention, um, but then there is a question of what's actually happening on the ground. Um, can you tell us a bit more about what you've seen in terms of, of this uh, access to rights? Yes, this is a, a very important question because you can ratify convention and what's going on on the ground is something different. So governments um, are working with international organizations to ensure that they provide support, they provide protection, and they ensure that IDPs um, have their basic needs. So 
there are a lot of organizations, international organizations um, that operates in the Sahel. I'm thinking of UNHCR, IOM, or the World Food Program to make sure that um, this particular and very, very vulnerable um, communities are really taken care of. If I have to add a point regarding the host communities and how they are welcoming towards IDPs, for example, I would like to highlight the fact that people that are moving are mainly people working within the agricultural sector, which is very common in African countries in, in the Sahelian regions. And we have some examples of host communities that consciously, like they lend some parts of um, the agricultural lands to IDPs so that they can work on it during the raining seasons. So we have this type of help that communities, like the, like the host communities will just organize themselves and integrate the IDPs within their community because they know that they are vulnerable. So even without um, the help of the governments and NGOs, local communities are really welcoming and they are trying to help IDPs um, to face this situation and not be always dependent of what's, what's coming from the governments or what's coming from the NGOs. That's really interesting. And a question for you is, do you feel there might be a distinction um, in how refugees are received against IDPs, um, both in terms of the support from local communities, but also the government response? Yes, there are some differences. Um, and this actually sometimes lead to conflicts uh, between host communities and IDPs, because sometimes host communities feel like IDPs are treated better than them. This happens when we talk about migration because, for example, um, there are some international organizations that help migrants that, are, that want to go back in their country to, to come back. They help them uh, set up um, uh, something for, to make a living. And some this this kind of things can be perceived um, as not just um, not equal to, like, to local communities. Sometimes they feel like this person was able to migrate. His migration was not successful. Now he's coming back and he's he's receiving more help than us that did not migrate. This type of things happens also when we talk about IDPs and host communities or refugees and host communities because sometimes they feel like they are treated um, better they are offered more opportunities than local communities so this kind of things should be um, taken care of by um, by policy makers to ensure that um, host communities also um, are not uh, receiving the same thing but in a way that um, they are also looked at, just not to um, create other type of conflicts that are not needed at all. Thanks. That's that's a very good point, and and we know that agencies and development actors like the UN, um, UNHCR, or the World Bank have thought to have this comprehensive approach to both you know host communities, internally displaced persons, refugees, 
Um, but as you described, there, there's still a lot to do um, in this area. And especially as we know, these issues are likely to persist. Um, and that's one of my last question for you. Um, what, you know, what's likely to happen in the region in the next few years? What are the key trends that we should be watching? I would like to say that we hope that insecurity and terrorist attacks will not occur that often. Everything is linked um, to the capacity of governments to face terrorism. If they are able to fight back and if they are able to treat the underlying reasons why people are turning against their states or everything is linked to the capacity of governments to face terrorism. The answer to that question is linked to that. Um, if they are able to ensure the security of populations, we may, we may witness a, de a decrease of the number of IDPs and an increase of people going back to their origin communities, to their origin countries. But if the fundamental issues that are linked to government failure, that are linked to people not being able to provide for their living, if these kind of issues continues, we unfortunately will witness more and more IDPs, more refugees, and we. this is not what we hope for our countries. And hopefully governments will be able to tackle these issues and be able to face the terrorism and everything is basically linked to that. And I think on this, I, I just want to ask you a last question because we've, you know, we sometimes read about the connection between local violence, local tension, terrorism, and, and also just climate change and the effect uh, of climate change on displacement, on migration. Um, is that something that you see also as gaining in importance in the next years? And how, you know, what could be done, how government anticipating for this? Yes, this is a very important question because most of Africans are working in the agricultural sector. And with the climate change and with the number of IDPs that are increasing in host communities, this will exacerbate um, the consequences of climate change because it creates tension on the resources like water, land, and so on. And if um, governments are not able to manage that, this will lead to what we call in economics um, a tragedy of commons. Though this means basically that it's a key point that the government have to um, very much uh, put an eye on and work a lot on it because with the climate change, with the, the increased number of people in host communities that are basically not prepared to receive this, this amount of people in a short time. It creates tension on the resource, and this is an important point. This is um, an, a key point where the governments have to work on. Thank you very much, Alex, for, for all of these insights. Um, and thank you for joining the podcast and for all your, your precious insight today. To our listeners, thank you for tuning in to another episode of The Word of Migration. If you enjoyed this conversation, uh, please check out our other episode, which you can find on Word of Migration, um, wherever you get your podcast. 
Um, and while you're there, please leave us a review. Um, you can also find all of this episode for this and other MPI podcasts at MPI website, migrationpolicy.org forward slash podcast. Finally, this episode was produced by Yosef Amid and made possible with help from Lisa Dixon and editorial input from Michelle Middlestad. Our theme music is called Bright Idea by Geographer. And I'm Camila Coos. Thank you again for listening and see you next time.